All right. Well, let's begin. Um, first off, I read that you were almost Bob Lambert, attorney at law. And yeah. can you tell me why that instead of doing that, you basically went towards a life of riches and fame instead? So if you can kind of go through a little of that, that music and educational upbringing, Bobby. Sure. Um, when I was growing up and going, I was the first person in my family to do band. Um, and I have a pretty large family, so that was uh, sort of a unique thing that was there. I didn't really quite know what to expect, and neither did my family. And uh, I joined in fifth grade, did elementary school, five, six, seven, and then our eighth grade was at the high school, and did I, I marched from the summer of my se- after seventh grade all the way through my senior year. And, and it just was one of those things where I liked it, but it never seemed like there could be more to it than just that. And uh, I'd, I'd always loved the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. That was sort of, you know, for no other reason than that the sports were there. And I liked those. So I thought that's a great place to go to school. I just didn't know what I was doing. And several people had told me, oh, you'd, be gr- you'd make a great attorney because I could speak pretty well in front of people. And so I thought, well, that sounds good. I, I mean, I wish I could say I really had deliberate thought and, and you know, worked this out in my mind. But it, it sounded good to say I'm going to go do pre-law at Carolina. That just sounded fancy to me, I guess. And so I I did that without a whole lot of investigation. I knew they had a good law school, but I didn't even really know what that meant. And so I went and was very happy. I was there, you know, August, September. And then around mid-October, I hitched a ride back with my former drum major from high school uh, to home. And on the way, there was a, a little high school, a little town along the way called Pisgah. And Pisco was hosting a contest that day that our band had traditionally gone to, and they were at that day. And she said, why don't we go check out Swain? That's, that was my high school, Swain County High School. Why don't we go check out Swain? They're performing at Pisco. And I was like, nah, I don't really want to do that. She says, well, we got to stop for lunch anyway. So, I, well, okay, if we're going to get food, then I'll be okay with that. We got food. We went into the stadium. And I had never just really sat and watched bands without being a part of that. And I really enjoyed that. And the the other thing was I started seeing, boy, I I don't know that I would have done that. If they had just done this, I think that would have worked better. And I'd worked with a couple of bands just helping out during band camps and things like that while I was a senior. And literally two, two sets of directors came up and said, what, what did you think? And I, I said, I don't, you know, I don't know what I'm just a, you know, college freshman. What? A, no, we really, we really value what you think. And I said, well, maybe this. I like this, and maybe that. Oh yeah, yeah, that sounds good. And I just had this thought of like, wow, maybe I, maybe I do know something about this. Turns out, after it was done, the it was pretty close to what the judges had seen too. And I, literally from that ride from Pisgah back to where uh, I was to be dropped off, I made the decision I'm going to be a band director. And so we followed my high school buses back to the band room, talked to my high school band director and said, man, I think I want to do this now. What do I do? At the time, Chapel Hill only had piano pedagogy and musicology. Um, they, they didn't have quite the strong concert and instrumental program that they certainly do now. Just at the time, they were in a bit of a transition. So I looked at transferring and I got to tell you, I was not ready. I mean, when they said, play your scales, I played the B-flat concert scale and then looked at them. And they were like, well, why don't you play uh, the G scale now? And I played the B-flat concert scale starting on the G. I mean, like I had no idea 
what any of that was. I'd had three lessons on a solo, the Boza aria, and stumbled into the school, and they were kind enough to let me in. And from that point on, I didn't really look back. It's, that's the only time in my life, well, maybe one of two times where I've made an absolute definitive decision kind of in an instant. Usually I like to process and go through and think, but it was so clear to me that this is what I want to do. That's what I did. So you're an instance then of, and, and just to be frank, somebody that went into music school and you were behind. Very. Right. You were very, very behind. But that did not stop you um, from pursuing this. Was there ever any time that you got to a point, though, while at that school and say, eh, maybe I should have stuck with law? Or was it always that drive of, no, this is what I have to do. I'm just going to have to work harder. The second one, for sure. And I was I, I, I was I wanted to think about that answer clear, carefully because it it seems like I would have gone the other way. <laughs> Uh, just like, ah, man, this was stupid. I should have stayed at law. I don't remember having that thought ever. I missed Chapel Hill um, and the, the town and, you know, kind of the, the school life. But I never missed, uh, I never regretted going into music. There were times where I would get frustrated with, uh, because it was a smaller school at the time, you know, you, you had to be the lead player in the jazz band play in the top wind ensemble on one instrument and a second instrument on the second band. And I had to play, but I needed, honestly, I really needed that because I hadn't been exposed to so much of it. The thing that it, because I was behind, it drove me to go seek out professors. Later on, you're going to ask me about mentors. And one of them that I'd mentioned right here is a Dr. Will Peebles. He was my music history professor and eventually my, my oral skills professor. I was so behind and out of it that I, it was pitiful. He would actually take me hiking on Saturdays and while we were going on two hour long hikes and almost the entire time it would be sing a, sing a scale, do to soul and make sure and start with this pitch. And we sort of joked that, you know, cause I grew up in Cherokee, North Carolina. We joked about the, you know, if you're really quiet out in the woods, you can hear the little people singing in Solfest. <laughs> but it, it made me, he saw that I wanted this badly, but my, my level of, of, a, of preparedness was not strong. And so I had to spend a lot of extra time. Piano skills were awful. I spent a lot of time doing that. Um, brass was awful. I, <laughs> you know, for, Everybody would just say, you know, just show up and do. And I, I couldn't do that. I was so bad. When I played my trumpet final, I remember Brad Ulrich saying, he was the professor of trumpet there, because I, I, I played all the right notes. I played the range that he asked. I did all the things that were written on the page. Thankfully, tone quality was not one of the assessment points. Because he said, you know, I don't think I've ever heard a trumpet quite sound like that. <laughs> but it, it was... I was so bad uh, that I had to work pretty hard at, at almost everything, but I never regretted it. It was like that was a means to an end. I, Whenever I got to stand in front of a band and conduct, it was just so powerful, just like nothing I'd ever experienced and uh, something I couldn't or can't get enough of now. 
So then here's a, a question then, and this is not to be critical of your high school band director or your upbringing, but you know, you said you had this career path possibly in mind and then you shifted to this one. However, seeing bands from that outsider's perspective uh, was a definite shift for you and a transformative experience. Do you think that is something that we as band directors today um, could either benefit from that maybe alternative participation means in band at least once or twice, or are there other things that um, maybe we're missing out on the, the band experience that could help kids like you in the past maybe see, you know, not even to, to force people to go into a career in music education, but just to get that different perspective? To be honest with you, I... I think that everybody has their own path and we can do is we can create as many opportunities. I, I remember um, there's a quote and I know Greg Bim says it, but I don't know if it's an original Greg Bim, but he says, you know, I can't assure your success, but I can make the conditions favorable for it. And the way that, that I think, and I, we do try to do this at Wanda, we've kind of made a commitment a number of years ago that if we go to any kind of performance assessment, or contest, we're going to work really hard to go and watch. Um, now, we were especially committed to that in the concert side or the jazz side. Sometimes with marching shows, the time just doesn't allow that to work out. But like, for example, we have our concert assessment, you know, like just going to, in Illinois, we didn't necessarily at the time have a state concert assessment, but you go to concert festivals at colleges and here in, in a lot of Southern states, the state concert assessment is a big deal. Most people at one time would just come, play, leave. And so you would play for an empty room with, if, I'm, if we're being blunt, three older white gentlemen behind a table that you never saw their faces and they never spoke to the kids. And we were trying to make that to be the most important thing we were doing in the year. And we realized pretty quickly that can't be. So we made a commitment that if we go, we're going we're gonna to at least go and listen to two other groups. And that's what we've done ever since. So I think that getting kids to where they can see other performances is a really big deal. For the marching thing, we can't often see it live, but we would do things where on Monday or Wednesday, we would try and watch another group. And sometimes uh, it was us from the past. Like last year was uh, a particularly strong year for us and we were about to break a record of state championships. And it was important for me to make sure the kids knew where we came from. And so I brought in the 2005, their first year of winning state, drum major to talk to the kids at band camp. And we watched that show. And it was very cool to see the kids look at that differently. So the bottom line for me is this. I do think that there are ways that we can make opportunities for the students to see people other than their own group. I do think that's important and I wish I'd had more of it in high school. At the same time, I don't think that we should lower our standards of quality to make it more accessible for just the general hobbyist. And here's, here's what I mean for that. I, that sounds a little harsh, but here's what I mean. I think that music programs have to have a certain quality and standard that they adhere to in everything that they do. I've seen plenty of programs that become a buffet. Like we've got a little bit of jazz over here. That's not very good. We've got a little marching band. That's not very good. Little concert band. not. Very, and they, they have so many opportunities they're trying to create, but the quality isn't that strong. And so I think that there has to be a fine balance of 
not compromising quality growth with just creating access to people that just want a touch of this. So that's a, that's a tough question, and I, I know I'm not giving a terribly definitive answer, but I, I, I of course, want our groups and all students to see others. Well, but I think... I was going to say, I think that's a very um, interesting point that you brought up about not uh, sacrificing the quality. And it is interesting to see where we are pushed, at least by administration or community sometimes, or by ourselves, on opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and as you put it, a, a buffet or smorgasbord there. Um, so maybe, maybe, and this is just a, a question that I have. Um, you know, I'm at a school where, you know, the, the marching band is, is a little bit difficult to get off the ground competitively, whether it be participation finances, etc. You know, is in your opinion, when you look at a band program, do you think three pillars of concert, marching and jazz? Um, is there a chamber component that goes into that? Like, what, what do you think then would be the minimum amount of, I guess, legs or branches uh, from a program? Yeah. That's a really good question. You know, Jeff Young and I did a, a thing called Total Program Success at, at Midwest a couple of years ago. We actually built a class around it. And I, for, for me, instead of looking at it, what ensembles do I need, we kind of went the other direction and said we want to engage the soloist, the individual, the chamber player, the small group, the concert, slightly larger, and then the marching band. We wanted those that idea of the student to be – and I'll tell you – when people say marching band success, that to me is a really uh, relative term. And here's what I mean. I've seen some great marching bands who never go into a competition. I think that's fine. Um, in their community, their marching band is required to do X, Y, and Z, and they do it really well by still teaching the kids to play with great sounds by teaching the kids that teamwork and responsibility and get, and here's the biggest thing I think marching band brings the opportunity to lead large groups of peers. Uh, I don't think you can get that anywhere else in the school. And so that's why I think that marching band, there isn't a, well, we've got to be BOA, whatever. I don't think that has any bearing on how successful the marching band is. I think a successful marching band is we have kids that love being here. They're better musicians after we do this. Cause I think, I think that's where some band directors miss it. They choose things that don't push the kids musically. And so they go through six months of like absolute intense stuff and the kid can't read count, uh, produce tone any better than they could before. So I do think that marching band is part of the, that individual, Chamber, concert, marching, I, and and jazz goes into the chamber thing with me too. I think that those are those are incredibly important for a well-rounded program. But the idea of successful can have a couple of different meanings. So, in simple terms, what you basically just said is we're a little more student-focused <laughs> than we are larger ensemble. Like you literally started with the student and went to the larger ensemble. When self-admittedly, I I myself look at the larger ensemble and then go to the student there. So maybe, maybe there's a shift in thinking that, uh, I have to tell you, I, we, we had to do that in a certain way. And I have found 
great happiness <laughs> from it. Here's what I mean. Like the ensembles get so much easier, so much. We, uh, let me, I can tell you this, I think briefly, um, we want, we knew we wanted a chamber component and they had played around with it before and solo and ensemble, but we all know solo and ensemble is about what you put into it. Uh, and sometimes everybody knows if you don't burn the place down, you get a superior and that's, that's kind of the end of the day. And the kids see it that way too. So we did a thing where we started our own solo and ensemble. And if you did well enough in a room, you got chosen to play at an honors recital. And we didn't realize how big that was going to become. At first, we just did our top ensemble. Then the second band got angry, which I love. They were pissed that they couldn't do that with us. So the next year, we did that for the second and the, the top ensemble. Well, then the third band got mad. And, and so now, literally, of the four concert bands, every kid is in a chamber group in the fall and a different one in the spring. And you would think, well, how did they fit that in? We, we don't rehearse on certain days and the kids do chamber music instead, which right now people's heads just exploded. Because I think sometimes we feel like we need to teach every day. We need to be in front of them. They can't learn without us. I would say we are all now seeing all this um, online learning. They learn a whole lot more, a whole lot faster without you slowing them down. That's a that's an interesting point <laughs> to that and and uh, no I, I I I'm just thinking about my own teaching with that too where we've had times where you know I've tried to teach a section until I've been blue in the face and eventually it got to the point where it's like trumpets just go go to the auditorium go learn it and uh, spoiler they came back and it was learned and uh, <laughs> I didn't they had to they didn't absolutely. Have to. You had to do the job. They had to stand and receive when it's don't come back or, and it doesn't have to be a negative thing. Like what's fun now is my kids understand when I send them out of rehearsal, that's not a punishment. It's just, you're not there. Go do that. And, and then come back and let me see where you are. What can you do in 20 minutes? And maybe what you can't do in 20 minutes, I can help you with the rest. But to finish that, that thought, when we started putting the ownness, ownership on this, the individual, the ense each ensemble, the larger it got, got a heck of a lot easier. Heck of a lot easier. I, I remember when we found out we were in Midwest, I, you know, the shock of, oh, crap, now we actually have to play this came in and I wanted to have sectionals and, and do it. And we did. But there were many, t and we had a, a few teachers that came in and helped us with the ones that were in the summer. When the school year began, we didn't quite have that same access. And I got really worried about that until I heard our kids working. And man, they were just bound and determined to do this great work that I, honestly, the only thing I had to do was to settle them down because they would get ticked if somebody came unprepared. Now, that's, that didn't just happen overnight. We really had to build that up. And there's a whole process. And in fact, we did a podcast on it about creating a chamber music program at your school. Be ready for the kids to fail. Be ready to hear them kind of embarrass themselves in front of your students, but you set up ways that they can do that. And then the idea that failure is necessary and failure is temporary need to be really ensconced into the program. If you don't fail, you're not trying the right stuff. You know, it's in, and, and here's another thing that I didn't prep you for, so I'm sorry. That's been like half the podcast so far is prep questions and non. Um, but one of our, our good friends together, Steve Piter, he used to come out 
a few years ago, I remember he was trying to get better at his job. He came out to Marian Catholic to observe things, um, rehearsals and, and, and uh, techniques. And I remember him saying once that he saw something called the Box of Destiny. I think that that's what it was called. Oh, yeah. Could you could you describe what that is? <laughs> it's just a little side thing, and I, I wanted to to check up sure. on it. <laughs> and, and boy, it's been updated now, so you'll you'll enjoy this. The original idea I, at Marian Catholic, the way it's set up, you have the top concert band, uh, and and then a freshman cadet band, and then everybody else in the middle. And so I, for the first seven or eight years, maybe seven years I was there, we just, we had that together. Now later on, we actually split it, but, and so I would have the number three oboe player and the number 33 clarinet trying to figure out how do we get this right? And I started, I at least started right now, what are the things that I feel like after you've been in concert band for a year, what should you be able to do? And the only things that I could really definitively say was I, I felt like they should all be able to play all 12 major scales with a reasonable range with good tone. Uh, and that I, there's some people that are saying, that's it? Yeah, that was kind of it. But from where people started, we would have kids come in not knowing anything. And so, and beginners and instrument switchers. So yeah, that was where we started. And I found that the top half was learning all 12 and, and blurring through it and the bottom half was just sitting in the same places over and over and I, that was where the idea actually as i think about it that's where the idea of if you're not playing as an individual you never know if you're because the kids would think they were playing it just fine and then when they would play it on their own oh well i always get it normally no you don't you never got it you just were hearing everybody around you getting it and so the box of destiny was and we made it to be a lot of fun it was the thing of where the box knows if you're ready or when you need to be ready, it knows when you need to play. And we would pull names out of a hat of like, okay, who's playing the E major scale today? Okay. Chablis playing. Okay. Chip is playing. And it was a thing I took from Greg. He used to do the solo tutti exercise where one person plays the solo. Everybody or plays the one person plays the scale Everybody plays the scale. Second person plays the scale. Now, what, what kids don't understand is if you said, I want us all to play this scale 45 times, they would shoot you in the face. But if you play solo 2D, they're playing the scale 45 times plus their solo. So that was where that, that kind of came from. And the Box of Destiny, now we have a Promethean board that has a, a spinner on it. You know, I don't know if you've seen those, but it has a, a randomizer. And I can do as many of those as I want. So I've got sections up, and the section will, will be spun. And then I've got keys over here, and I spin that. It's like trumpets are playing the E major scale, and we just go down the line, and everybody plays in between them. Because then I found I can get through a lot more scales that way. But again, and the thing that I tell them, again, failure is necessary. I, I tell them every day somebody's going to crash and burn, and they can play it. But just in that moment, they crashed and burned. Now, we don't need to have an emotional breakdown. We don't need to have a laughing point because it'll be you soon enough. But just know that you're going to crash at one point and everybody's going to crash at one point. But if we let go of that fear of failure, we suddenly can get a lot better in a, in a much nicer community. 
One of the uh, terms I keep hearing today are, we used to hear helicopter parents, and a term I'm hearing today a lot is lawnmower parents, you know, where we try to take away all the obstacles in front of the student. And I remember when Steve uh, Piter first told me about that box of destiny, I said, okay, what's, I said, that's cool. What's the point of it? And he said, well, Bobby told me kids don't know how to be stressed today. <laughs> and I remember that being a time where it started to be where stress was bubbling up quite a bit in, in, in students, or at least we were thinking about it more. And I remember Steve saying, well, he's, he's actually teaching them how to manage the stress and that, yes, it's okay to fail and it's okay to fail in front of everybody. And it's okay to have that dread of, oh my gosh, I got to play the scale, but you got to get it done. So th thanks for uh, being prepped on that. <laughs> Just so hey, The only thing I would add to that, if you are thinking about doing it, I would tell you that with, with, my, with the younger students, we'll set that up about three weeks. And we'll do something like, you know, just here's what it is. Now our kids know about it, so it's not that big of a deal. But if you're just introducing it, you want to set it up and do section 2D. Like, okay, here's the E major scale and the trumpets, but all the trumpets are going to play that E major scale together. And then all, all of us do that. So that you really prep them for, you know, we've already done this three days in a row. And so to not get it now, there, there is a delinquency or a, a problem with range or something there that, that needs to be addressed. But again, that idea of it's okay to fail. Um, one other thing that we do with scales, especially now, is I tell the kids when we're doing our warm-up and working with scales, that's the time to try new octaves. You know, I've heard groups that warm up and they sound beautiful from the first moment. And I'm like, this is stupid. Like, what are we, what are we doing? The warm-up, if you think physical activity, you are actually trying to get blood flowing. You're trying to find your limits and push a little bit past them. But if kids don't know their limitations in playing, how do they get past them ever? And that's where I think the warm-up. So you might come in to even in our Midwest warm-up. I had my tubas who like to try, I think it's the D scale. They like to try and go as high as they possibly can on the D scale. And I don't care. I, we're not working on tone. We're working on technique and facility at that moment. So I tell them, you know, go for it. And then when somebody sounds like a dying seal on the top, it's okay. No problem. Well, that's great. That's great. Um, we got a couple of different ways we can go here. Um, let's do this. And, and this is a question I've had before too, which is, you know, when I hear about you, of course I hear, uh, great bands and I hear great student musicians and, and you know, at, at multiple places, um, but also student leadership is something that, that comes to mind. And you mentioned that before that, um, you know, band can be a wonderful tool for that. I guess the first question would be, would be, you know, why do we need student leadership at this point? Maybe right now and also just in, in, in general prior to the uh, whole COVID-19 deal. I'll, I'll, I'll give you... Here's, here's why we need student leadership. So I'm doing this thing for Music for All every Wednesday at four. We're doing uh, Patterns for Success. It's basically getting drum majors and student leaders ready for what's to come. Uh, we've had great guests come in. I think that people would say that I, I do a lot of work with drum majors, um, all those things. I'm not trying to brag about that, but here, here's what I'm getting to. Uh, on that broadcast that we do. I have the Wando drum majors on that Zoom with me 
and when kid, cause we have about 300, 200, 300 kids that will come in each time when they ask questions, I can't stop the presentation to answer that. So my drum majors are there and they answer the questions at the bottom. We get done with the broadcast and uh, we're, you know, thanks everybody. Koji Mori was with us. Thank you. And uh, my Ted drum major, who's now senior goes, Mr. Lambert, when are we doing our auditions for drum major? Oh crap. Uh, hadn't thought about it. Like I, I've been working on a couple of projects for our band, trying to do something for our seniors. And that just completely slipped my mind. So why do we need student leaders? Because even the best, best band directors can't get everything all the time, but those students have a different perspective and they have a different level of appreciation for what's there. So I think that's, that's one thing. Uh, really one of my major lessons in, in developing a leadership program was uh, I used to have to paint the practice field at Marion and it was, but you know, you've been there before. Remember that grass field behind the stadium? Yeah. Yeah. And I, man, I hated that. It would take me three days to get it done. I would go out after I taught my last band class and until afternoon rehearsals. So for about four to five hours for three days, I was out there doing that. And I hated it. It just was awful. I remember I had gotten it said, and I'd asked a couple of kids to come and help me with something. And I got the call that my wife was going into labor. And I had just gotten them set up. And I was like, guys, I got to go. I, uh, Alicia needs me right now. Just put the stuff away and I'll take care of it when I come back. Well, baby comes. I come back a week later and the field is done. <laughs> And I wondered what had happened. I said, Greg, who did you get to, to do the field? He goes, I thought you finished it. No. So I went to the kids. I think a kid named Jeremy Turner was on it by then. Maybe it maybe have even been before him. And I said, how did you guys get the field done? We just did it. And I was like, oh. And he goes, we, we've actually already painted it one time again. So I think it's in good shape. We'll take care of it from now on. And I never painted a field again. And I thought... <laughs> Hmm. You know, and they took great pride in that. Great pride in that. And to see their, like, and what's great is you're going to have kids in your band. Well, here, here's the, here's a, a, a hard truth that I hope I'm not blowing anybody's mind with. The majority of kids are not in your band to play music. If you ask them, what is your main focus in being in band? Why do you like band? However you want to ask it. It's always friendships and relationships, then the travel and the experiences. And then a distant third is, I like music. <laughs> I, I like to play my horn every once in a while. Right? <laughs> that's, that's it. And I, he, I learned that at Marian Catholic, and I showed Greg the results of this, this thing, and he was like, well, yeah. And I thought, what is happening right now? I'm at maybe the, the most storied band program of all, and the kids just want to have friends here. Well, as I traveled around I know that that's the truth with that they you've got kids who aren't going to be your top band players but they're still great kids they're not going to get the solos they're not going to be the top trumpet soloist but they're great kids who want to give back to the program and when they have those opportunities like field crew electronics crew uh, any of those things they that's a very powerful set of ownership and here's what I'm getting to I think that a band program that doesn't have student ownership and family ownership is kind of doomed for failure. It can last for a little bit of time, 
but in the long run, when a director changes or when economic times hit or when whatever, those tend to be the programs that fall away pretty fast. I think there have to be, there has to be that ownership of the students to really make it go. And the last thing that I would tell you is that I feel like when, and maybe this goes with ownership, I feel like when students are engaged and involved in the band program, they become engaged and involved in their own lives. Uh, I've seen it so many times, kids who came to the program just sort of following the herd. And when they, when they found a place that they could really engage themselves and have responsibility, they just skyrocketed. Uh, so I, I think number one is for band director sanity. For number two, it's it's the student and family investment and an ownership of the program to build it up to sustain it. And then three, I guess it comes back to the student. It's a lifelong lesson that if they learn it there, they don't have to go to the college and realize I've been an idiot for the past five years and my <laughs> education is my responsibility. You know, how many parents have sent their kids away to college only to find them back at their door in October? Absolutely. Is, is there, in your opinion, maybe a wrong way to begin implementing leadership into a band program that hasn't experienced that before? Sure. Uh, I would tell you the only thing that I've found that I think is wrong is giving the kids the power of the grade I don't think that students can assess grades for one another. And even the ones that probably could, they shouldn't. Uh, parents would never, and I wouldn't either. But number two, when, when students are involved and part of the discipline process, for us, we talk about the student leaders are our eyes, ears, and voice when we can't be there. They're not our, and so what we'll say to that is they're there to be the prime example. They're there to give guidance. They're not there to discipline or to show anger. Now that's easier said than done, but the discipline piece, I think when you allow like kids, if they don't do something, then you need to make them run five laps. I know I don't, that's happened before. And sometimes in some programs that works but I have never subscribed to the idea that students can discipline other students. They can, their point of uh, discipline is to come to us because that's our job. So I think those are the only two things that I would tell you, uh, maybe going too fast, starting, starting a leadership program and saying, we're going to, cause like at Wando, we have professional or professional, excuse me, um, performance leadership and then service leadership. And those are two kind of prongs that go out there. This, the performance leadership is more your traditional section leaders and those kinds of things. And so their playing has been a, a large part of that, but the service leadership has started, especially just in the last three years. And we've really opened it up to kids to say, if you want to do something, create a committee and let's go. So it's not necessarily something we're choosing. It's something the kids are building and doing. I think if I had done both of those at the same time, I don't know that it would have worked very well. So we had to get that the performance leadership set and then the service sprang out of it. And that's not necessarily just to give more titles to kids to put on their resume. That's legitimately, we need this help. You are best suited to be a leadership through your performance. You're sitting first chair alto sax. 
But as you mentioned earlier, maybe you have 33rd chair clarinet who happens to be fantastic at getting people uh, together, organizing music, things like that. Right. So we're, we're looking at, you know, as you're saying, there's student, student strengths and program need. Right. So that the last part of that thing of uh, can you do it wrong? Uh, I think establishing leadership positions without descriptions. Like there has <laughs> to be, there has to be, okay, we're going, we're going to add band captain. Okay. What does that mean? Like, are they piloting the plane if we ever get on one? Like what, <laughs> what does it mean to be band captain? And you have, a, you know, it doesn't need to be more than three or four clear descriptors so that when the band captain, let's use that, um, falls down on the job, I can then, as the director, go to him and say, number three says that each time this happens, this should be done. I've noticed that it hasn't happened yet. Can you tell me about that? I think when we go to, like, one of the things I've learned from Scott Rush when he was running Wando, he had a really good thought of, I'm never going to go to the student about how what I feel or what I perceive. It's, here is this point. Can you explain why that's not happening? Instead of you're falling down on the job, what's your problem? It is um, there's supposed to be water at every rehearsal provided by the band captain. I've noticed that we haven't had water for about a week now. What's going on? How can I help you? And it completely changed the dynamic. Kids get, and maybe I think more here than I'd experienced before, they get very defensive very quickly. And I think it's because here in the South, I don't know if it's the heat or whatever, but I think that we're all just uh, very aware of, and when you, when we perceive that we've fallen down on the job, that's a really big deal. Uh, and I've seen it other places. So I'm not just saying that, that completely generally, but I noticed here that our kids, when they felt attacked, they got very defensive very quickly. And maybe all kids do that. But instead of it being me against you, it is, this point, something's going on with that. What can we do to make that go? That's a great, I think, transition then into the the two major schools of your career, um, which would be Marion Catholic High School and, and Wando. And what we have are, are two very successful programs, but they're in two different parts of the country and probably two different uh, student makeups overall based on what I, what I saw there. Um, I, I know also with Marian Catholic, I had this perception about Marian Catholic with everything that all of you did. And yet again, when I talked to Steve, he goes, yeah, Bobby's out there on the field and Greg is cleaning drill from a light pole. And then one or two other people come in and I'm like, well, wait, isn't there supposed to be this massive staff he goes, well, they don't have it. No. I said, well, but they win. <laughs> right? <laughs> and and that, was, that was 22, 23-year-old me asking that. Would you mind touching upon a little bit about similarities and differences between those programs? Well, I'll tell you, I actually, with that one, I, I wanted to write a few of them down. Um, and I, I alluded to this a little bit before, but I remember getting the job at Wando, and Alfred Watkins called me, and he said, now, you know, the schools in the South are different. <laughs> I said, well, you know, I'm originally from North Carolina, but what do you mean by that? And he said, honestly, here's what I really mean. The perception of football in the South versus the North is a big factor in the way that band programs get funded and are perceived. So you have to know that going in. I won't even go 
which one's right, which one's wrong, whatever. There, there are benefits to each one. But that's just a – there is a difference in funding and perception because of the importance of football. I, I won't even say athletics, the importance of football in the South. So that's a, that's a pretty big difference between the two. Um, funding is very different. And this is, this is where I think people have a perception of Wando that is not correct. Um, they, they see us, and we're in a rather affluent area for sure. I'm not going to deny that. But we're part of an 88-school district. We are one of 15 high schools in a 100-mile by almost 80-mile block of Charleston, uh, or of Charleston County. That's the largest county in the state, and it's the largest, uh, per, uh, excuse me, per capita as well. So I get the same funding that every high school gets here, which is bad, ultimately. We have a formula that you get about $30 per student. And so my budget for Wando each year is between eight to $10,000 from the district, and that's it. And how many students are in the program? 250. Okay. Uh, we can't go to the lo- the most local of band contests with that amount. So um, the funding of, and, and while Marion does a ton of fundraising and all that through, through there is a school budget that does come and that, so it's not great, but just we're at about 98% student family funded. And so that, that makes a difference in the way that we do business each day. Um, one of the other things that I was looking at is um, student motivation and responsibility. And I mean that, like, what's great is I see Wando now going to that. And Scott did such a great job of, of getting them out to new things. He took them to Grand Nationals for the first time, took them to Midwest for the first time. And he tried to always do it in the right order. Like they went to Midwest in 07, then they went to Grand Nationals in 09. He wanted to make sure that the concert was always the, the, the powerful thing. What's tough, and maybe what people don't understand too, is we're on an island, basically. You have to cross two bridges to get to Mount Pleasant. Uh, so we're about as far away, like Columbia, the capital, we're two two hours and 20 minutes away from that. Uh, we're, there's just a lot of space because of the marshes and the ocean around us. So to go and hear other people is not something that we can do terribly easily. And for many years, that was sort of how Wando operated. It was a big high school, had a ton of kids. Um, but the quality level was maybe not that of a state or national thing. So Scott did a great job of getting the band out to see other things and they rose to the occasion. Whereas Marion being in Chicago and having that history of stuff and, you know, you can drive to Homewood Flossmore, you could go and hear another band concert and not, you know, 10 minutes you're there. So the access and the availability is different. And notice I'm trying not to say one's better than the other. It's just, it's, it's been, it's been really different. Um, that history and tradition was something that was coming into play, but I think now it's come into it even more. I can remember my first couple of years, we really had to convince the kids they were good. They just, they, they had no idea and they were scared of everybody. When we went to a contest, it was, oh my gosh, I hope we don't fall apart. 
barring any unforeseen thing, I think we're going to be okay with that. And mm-hmm. you know, I hope I remember how to play my horn. I mean, they were just so <laughs> paranoid about everything. We spent a lot of time convincing them that if you've done the work and you've gotten the, the upbringing that our great middle schools have, and I'll go to that one in just a second, chances are good that you're going to be in good shape. And, and there it was. Big major difference is middle school engagement. Uh, we, we now have two main middle school feeders. We used to have three. We actually are splitting right now. And the third middle school is going to the new school. But we have two middle schools that do great things and are doing some great stuff for us. And we have direct access. I mean, we go over there. They come and see us. That's a huge difference between Marion Catholic and Wando. Being able to have that middle school feeder and that direct connection um, is pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Let me see uh, if I had. Uh, the last thing was uh, access to arts. Um, Chicago, if you want to go see the symphony, the opera, the plays or whatever, you can go do that. Uh, at any time of year, Charleston is, it has a nice art scene, but it's not to the degree that Chicago is. So, um, while it's a little bit easier to get to like easier access, you can get tickets more easily. You can go to the Charleston symphony, which is a very fine symphony. Um, it's not as big a deal here yet. And I think we're getting better about that. But, I mean, we have the Spoleto Festival that brings in people from all over the world. And I would tell you, I, don't, I almost don't hear anything about it being a mm. high school arts program right <laughs> next door. So we're still trying to figure that out. Absolutely. Fascinating with that. Um, and, and again, I, I just kind of wanted to hear some comparisons with that because they, they were two successful programs despite circumstances that you know, might be standing in the way, whatever they might be. And, and yeah, just because there might be a higher uh, student or family income there doesn't really mean much at, at the end of the day with that. Well, I would tell you that with, with both of them, I never, when I was at Marion, I mean, I look back at it now and say, man, we had some things figured out, but now I don't feel like I do. I don't think there's been a year that goes by that I felt like, man, everything's just going to be smooth sailing from this sure. point on. There's always the, Man, if we don't get this figured out, I worry about that. I worry about this domino falling. So I, I don't know that you ever get to a place where you feel like you can just sort of put it in cruise control. If we do, I haven't gotten there yet. There's, so I think every director is like, well, you know, this would be better if I could get this one thing. But mm-hmm. Me too. I think you have to figure out which one of those things could be fixed the easiest and give you the most bang for your buck. Like, for example, our uniforms are just really ratty. Problem number one, our middle school band director is not very strong and needs help. I can tell you right now, I couldn't care less about those uniforms because that gets me looking nice. But if the kids can't play, that doesn't mean anything. Getting that middle school director help is a game changer. For sure. That's going to provide help from that point on. So looking at the problems you have and which ones can be fixed, you know, if you can fix one fast, great. But usually it's more like what's going to make the kids play better and be more invested. Those are the big problems that I want to hit first. Absolutely. Well, we got a couple more here. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I know all the way at the beginning, you mentioned uh, one or two names, but would you mind talking to me a little bit about some key mentors in your life? 
Yeah. I, I mentioned Dr. Will Peebles. He was, he was the one that I don't think if I had met him, I would have found a love for learning about music. I knew I loved to listen to it, but if I'm really honest with you, I had never heard a professional orchestra recorded or not when I was in college as a music major. Never heard one. My dad, oh my gosh, can't believe I'm telling you this. My dad had bought a Ford F-150 in the late 90s, and it had uh, an okay sound system in it. But to check that sound system, Ford gave you a cassette tape that had all different kinds of music. And one of the things it had on there was the John Williams, or John Williams conducting New York in the Star Wars music. Okay. And I remember hearing that going like, what, 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 what is that? I, I, I didn't know what those even were. And I was like, oh, that's like a fiddle, I guess. And I, you know, I've seen a fiddle before, but man, they sound different than the fiddles I've heard. <sighs> it, I mean, it just, it was just exposure. And I remember I was a college sophomore when, uh, the, the young woman who had student taught me, I remember I said three, I had three lessons before my audition. She was the one who gave me the free lessons. Um, she came back to Western to be a grad student and several of us were, were good friends. And she said, um, Hey, the new or the North Carolina symphony is playing in Raleigh, a four hour drive. Uh, why don't we go see them? I was like, okay, I'm not doing anything. Let's go. And we were, it was an outdoor thing. And I heard that group and I just remember sitting there going, what have I been doing? Like, where has this been my whole life? And then when I found out that, like, that was way before band stuff, it just blew my mind. Will Peebles helped me to foster a love for learning about music when I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, let me go from now backwards, though. Greg Bim, I've done an entire podcast about what that guy means, and uh, to not just me, but to pretty much everybody who knows him and, and sees him. I think from Greg, I would say that I learned that uh, student development and, and student um, care is the most important thing. And I don't, I don't think people see that when they look at him, but I don't know I've ever met anybody who cares more for kids than he does. Yes, he's amazing at all the stuff that he does, but I've seen him just – you know, completely lose his mind because a kid was quitting. And he thought if they lose this opportunity, I don't know what they're going to become. And he just would fight and beg and plead. And it's just incredible. So student development, most important thing. And the other stuff will take care of itself. If I go backwards from that, Lynn Clock was my saxophone teacher at the University of Massachusetts. Most people don't always uh, know that I have a performance degree. Actually, that's what I did my master's in. It wasn't education. It was performance for various reasons. And uh, Lynn Clock taught me that um, music demands to be studied and perfected. Now, you won't ever get there. It won't be perfect. But it deserves the right to try. Uh, and so, like, the idea of honoring composers, and I would say Malcolm Rowell there, too. He was my conducting teacher. Both of them they made it really key that performing uh, as best as possible, as much as the composer intended is paramount to whether music is good or bad. I, I use that often. I remember at Marion, we started working on the Persichetti pageant 
with the second concert band and the kids didn't love it. And I can remember we were working on something. I said, you guys just don't sound like you like this. And the kid said, we don't. <laughs> and, and, and people chuckled. And then me being a little bit of a smart aleck said, well, if I played it that way, I wouldn't like it either. <laughs> And while that was maybe not the most professional way to come to that thing, it did come to a, a philosophy where I have with the kids of, if you play something incredibly well and don't like it, I won't argue. I, I will let you have that. But if you don't play it to a top-notch level, you can't judge whether it's good or bad. You just can't do that. I remember playing West Side Story for the first time, somewhere from West Side Story, my high school band, and we all thought it was terrible. Thought it was the worst thing ever. Our band director even made a, a pact with us that if we played it well enough at our last marching contest, we wouldn't have to play it at the next two football games. <laughs> well, we got really good at it, and guess what? We, fig- we found out that it was a great piece of music, and so when we did well, he said, okay, we don't have to play somewhere for it anymore. And I, I was the one that raised my hand and said, can we just keep it? And I was like, yeah, we want to keep it now. Until we, we approach something with an honest and earnest uh, sensibility, music can't live. And so, and they, they both taught me a lot about people, but I wanted to highlight their musical approach. Like to honor the composer is a major calling that we have as well. Absolutely. And then back from that, Bob Buckner, I mean, <laughs> without Bob, I don't know that I would be doing much of anything right now. This is the guy that he held me accountable He's the one that talked to me in high school saying, I think you'd be a good band director. And I was like, ah, whatever. I don't, he probably planted the seed before he even knew it. He let me be a drum major when I had no real right to be. I'd never even been in their college marching band before. Like at Western Carolina, I was a drum major there for three years. But remember, I transferred in. So I actually never marched at Western. So my first rehearsal with them, he said, okay, call the band to attention. I remember turning around the podium and going, how do you all do that? <laughs> I wasn't even a drum major in high school, so what the heck did I know? Uh, he, he's the one that, and he's the one that told me, man, you should do drum major clinics. I think you'd be good at that. Uh, he, Bob is one of those people that like has a wisdom that's beyond words, and he had, he had a way of making you want the right things. It wasn't about disappointing Bob. I mean, I, it was to a certain extent. But he always made us feel like even if you messed up, he'd still care for you, still love you. I'll go ahead and say that. But he made you want to do well for him and then eventually for yourself. And so, you know, I've I've brought Bob into Wando several times, uh, mainly because I wanted his approval even still now. Mm. I don't know why, but he just, he meant so much. I think with Bob, he taught me that it didn't matter that I was from Toe String, North Carolina. Um, not having maybe the most musical background meant nothing. It was what I did from that day forward that determined my level of success. And so I'll, I'll never forget. And he probably was the one that taught me about failure because I failed several things that he gave me to do. <laughs> and he would kick me in the tail and then tell me to get up and try again. And so that was big. Well, that's great. Well, two more things. Oh, go. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. My my parents, Mm -hmm. Uh, my mom and dad, uh, my mom passed away in January, but I would, I would really mess up if I didn't acknowledge 
uh, the, my family's role in what I do. My dad was a maintenance worker for the park service, and my mom worked in craft shops in Cherokee whole life. And I, there was a time in my life when I was a little bit embarrassed by that because everybody would say, oh, my dad's a doctor and mine's this and that. You know, mine had pretty humble uh, positions, I guess I would say. But I never saw anybody care more for those positions than they did. I mean, my dad, he was in charge of trails and park offices and uh, campgrounds. And, man, they were spotless on his watch. He would even go out on Saturdays and Sundays if he didn't get something finished because it made him, it bothered him to not be finished with a job. And my mom, I it actually worked in the craft shop for two years with her. I saw her treat people with a respect that they did not deserve. And I saw people disrespect her, yet she didn't them. Now, I wish I could tell you I remember that every day, <laughs> but I don't. But they, they both did teach me that if you're going to do a job, do it right do it well and, and try and treat people as neighbors and, you know, uh, love your neighbor was a really important thing in our house. And who's your neighbor? Well, everybody you come in contact with. So. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Well, two more quick ones here. Um, yeah. you know, literature recommendations, I, I think yeah. what could be helpful and, and what's been popular recently is, is, you know, here's the stuff everybody knows, but do you have a few pieces that maybe are either lesser known or just don't seem to be as popular today that you might want to recommend? Um, sure. Well, and I would, I would tell you that I'm so glad that when I started, Greg told me that there are composers and pieces that I need to meet first before I start to branch out. And he gave me the book, Rehearsing the Band. Uh, and, you know, now Steve Meyer has come out with a second version of that. Uh, but that first version talked to Fennell, uh, Ravelli, uh, um, gosh, who else? Uh, Mark uh, from the University of Illinois. Uh, uh, Bob is the son, Mark. Oh, uh, sorry, Hinesley. Sorry, I was muted I, there for oh a second. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I can't believe I'm <laughs> So Mark Hinesley um, talked to 10 different directors of note. Uh, uh, James Croft at uh, Florida. And he's, they basically said, what do you look for in literature? And then can you give us your top 10? Some did like grade six, top 10. Some did grade five, some did grade four. And some just said, here's my top 10 pieces for band. And then at the back of the book, like one of the last pages, it says, these pieces appeared on all 10 top 10 lists. So like Lincolnshire Posey, everybody said, you should Lincolnshire Posey. Um, of course, Alfred Reed was on there. Um, I guess what I would say is I think that before you start going and looking at the John Mackey's and the, um, other things that are there, you need to live with Hounds of Spring. Uh, you need to live with Clifton Williams, uh, either Symphonic Suite or Symphonic Dance Number 3. I think you need to live with Korean folk songs or even, um, Air for Band. You know, the, the, the Frank Erickson mm -hmm. era for band. I think that when you do some of those monumental pieces, you start to understand where composers are coming from. So that when you go with somebody who maybe, like those pieces that stay within the rules, so that when you go to a John Mackey, an Aaron Perrine, an Eric Whitaker, when they break the rules, you know how to approach it a little bit differently. 
So like Clifton Williams would be something that I, I think that people could revisit a little bit more often. Um, you know, said his symphonic suite for band is wonderful, does some great stuff. Um, there's, there's some Macbeth pieces that I think could be revisited. Um, I think some of those pieces are there and Alfred Reed, the, the first and second suite for band. There's some really nice literature that's there, especially for our grade four, grade three emerging ensembles. I think sometimes we get the feeling of, I see this with band directors all the time. What are you playing for concert festival? What are you mm-hmm. playing? And they would rather say something impressive than play impressively. And I, I think that that's where we're missing the boat a little bit. I tell groups all the time, I would much rather hear you play the Persichetti pageant really well than the symphony very poorly. Okay. Uh, but so I, I think that that's it. Persichetti pageant is another one. I think people are saying, well, I don't like Persichetti. I don't, again, uh, I'll use this, and this may sound a little harsh. If you haven't performed it well, you don't have a really great right to say you don't like it. And I'll use that on myself. When sure. I got to Marion, here's another one, Hammersmith. Um, Greg was doing Hammersmith, and I hated it. I thought, dude, this is like, let's put the audience to sleep for the next 10 minutes. <laughs> this is awful. Awful. And then, and I I wish I could tell you, and then I learned, you know what? I went through that whole concert cycle and I still hated it. Only later, when I started to learn a little bit more about Gustav Holst, and when Greg, when I started to see what Greg was doing with it, I was like, oh, crap. That's, there's some great things that are going on in there that we just haven't paid attention to. Um, The Aaron Copeland emblems. I think sometimes we feel like maybe the Schoenberg theme and variations, that one's, uh, (laughs) <laughs> sometimes I can take or leave that piece. If you have a great ensemble that can put it together, I think it's worth your time. If you're going to have to really work on it, eh, I don't, I don't know that it's there, but I guess I would say that I think when we shy away from the more intellectual stuff and we just do the maybe more candy, the lighter pieces, the easier pieces to understand, we get the, we set the audience up to demand and expect easy. And I think that's dangerous. I think there's got to be a balance. I think you've got to give them Lincolnshire Posey and then give them Circus B and then give, you know, give a concert that all together is a great meal. And I've heard this explain, and I love food. I mean, you can tell, look at me, (laughs) but I've heard this explained several times that a great concert is like a great meal. You have your appetizer, you have maybe your salad, your lighter piece, you have the main course and then you have a dessert course or a coffee course. And that when you do that, the concert is fun and fulfilling. Let me say that again. The concert is fun <laughs> and fulfilling for the audience and for the kids. I've seen honor groups where the conductor, I can tell, was just like, I just want them to have a good time. Well, I think that's good. But I can remember the first time I ever heard Les Mis was in an honor band situation and I didn't understand at all what it was. But later on in college, when I really got to, I didn't get to see it live, but I saw parts of it uh, on a video. I remember thinking, man, this is awesome. And it just planted some seeds that maybe didn't grow right then. Great music is like great food. If it's great and high quality, 
it will fulfill you and sustain you for days. Whereas if it's light, you're kind of like, okay, what's next? I think we need that light, but we really need to make sure that we're anchoring everything with some great. And I know people got to a place where they were like, well, we don't want to play any of the classics anymore. And I think if I were at a college in my 15th or 20th year, I could maybe understand that. I don't know that I would, I, I can understand it better there, but as a high school director, who's meeting kids for the first time with some of this great literature. I think it's kind of our duty. I, I want my kids to play Lincolnshire, to play the Persichetti symphony and the Hindemith symphony, or at least something by those three composers by the time they get through our time together. I don't know well, if it's a fair comparison, but I, you, you talking about this almost makes me think about English classes that yes, there's some modern literature, but we are still in high schools reading Beowulf and then Shakespeare and then Steinbeck after that. So that's at least where my mind is going to. Yes. Well, because I think it gives you a different appreciation. I, I don't think that you can listen to maybe Mackey's Wine Dark Sea or his Frozen Cathedral until you've listened to the Debussy Frozen Cathedral. Mm. You know, like I, I think hearing that, you know, he has some certain allusions back and forth that, that are there but it makes it make a lot more sense. Instead of just going like, wow, this is, you know, I think of the old uh, American bandstand. How do you rate this tune? Well, I give it a 10 because it's got a good beat and I can dance to it. Yeah, that's great. But why have these pieces stood the test of time? Because there's, there's quality in there that doesn't go away. We, we several, oftentimes, whenever I've done Persichetti, I've made sure that the other bands are doing the same thing. One time at Wando, uh, the top band did the symphony, the second band did the psalm, and the third band did the pageant. And then we let them hear it. And they, there was a, a total different awareness that came from us as the conductors and from the kids listening to it. I did that one time at, at Marion, too. Greg was doing the symphony, and we did pageant. Later on, when he did the symphony again, we did psalm. And when the kids heard the symphony, they were like, oh, okay. That makes a lot more sense. I've seen band directors listen to the symphony and go, what is this? I don't get that. <laughs> if you haven't come to it from Persichetti's harmony, uh, I can understand where it can bend your ear a little bit. But man, I got to tell you, after doing the Persichetti symphony, next year we did Southern Harmony, and I approached that totally differently because of the Persichetti in my ear. I, I think that that's big. Now, if you're looking for some great composers that are out now that I think can supplement those classics, you know, can supplement variations on a Korean folk song or um, Chester. That's one that people avoid like the plague because, oh my goodness, at the contest, people might worry about our intonation. You worry about the intonation first. <laughs> Get it right. And if you do your job, then there you go. Uh, let me uh, take a brief aside. I've been asked this question several times. And it, it makes my blood boil. Can you tell me a really easy grade four piece that we can do? <laughs> um, that's like saying I need heart surgery, but I want the cheapest surgeon that I can get. <laughs> that's that doesn't that doesn't compute. Hmm. Now I I I love the question of somebody saying, "Hey, we want to go grade four. Band's grade four, but my flute section is a little bit weak." What should I look? I love that question. I think that's a great question. Or, you know, our brass isn't as strong as our woodwinds. 
what's a piece that can develop that better? Chester, for sure. It'll get the brass section figuring out their lives because the woodwinds play right beside them beautifully. Anyway, there's some great composers to put alongside that. Omar Thomas, who I think is a great person and I think has a real definitive voice in our time right now. His Shenandoah, his uh, Of Our New Day Begun, his Come Sunday, I think are going to be pieces that stand the test of time. I've sometimes seen composers bring out a piece, and a couple of years later, you don't hear it. I think these will do that. Uh, another one of my favorites is Aaron Perrine. If you haven't listened to Pale on Blue or Afterlight, he's got some beautiful harmonies. You know, for a while, everybody was trying to be Eric Whitaker. Yeah. I, and, and, and because it's gorgeous, beautiful, but everything started to try and sound like that. And I think Aaron has a real distinctive voice that can be, I, I've never, let me, I'll say it this way. I've never felt the emotions that I've felt until I listened to his music. It, cause it's, it's not quite sad. It's not hopeless, but it's not happy or hopeful at all. There's a, an in-between that I think he captures. He wrote a piece for us for Midwest called Life Painting. And it's grade two. It's maybe the most challenging grade two piece I've ever seen. And it's, it's not technically hard, but to get the way he wanted things to feel and sound was tough. Um, I'm going to say this, and, and Don, you haven't prodded me on this. Uh, Steve Piter. I think he's got some great pieces out right now. He's going to love you right now. <laughs> well, I, and I got to tell you, I, I, yeah. I heard this piece before I knew it was Steve, because I, I adore Steve Piter. When I got to work with him at uh, uh, Plainfield North, he, he got those kids in a wonderful place, and he did things with them that he shouldn't have been able to do. Uh, the resources, the opportunities, those things weren't there. And he still created great stuff. So I, I am a huge Steve Piter fan. But I'll tell you, in listening for Midwest, um, and, and forgive me, I just, the name of the piece just left, Tempus. Tempus uh, Modus. Tempus Modus. Yeah. Was on one of the, well, I'll tell you, uh, one of my associate directors was going through things and, and picking stuff out, kind of one level of, so she's great at finding grade one through grade six literature. She's just brilliant. Laney Radicky. And she had pulled it out, and I listened to it. I was like, man, I like this piece a lot. Um, but it doesn't sound like anybody I know. Who is this? And I saw Steve Pider, and I was like, well, that can't be the Steve Pider I know. Sure enough, it is. So I liked the piece before I knew it was Steve. Uh, and he's got a few other things that are out that I think are really uh, – man, to find great grade three and grade four literature is tough. That That's newly written. There's yeah. a lot of it that's so formulaic that it's kind of like – Oh, here comes the exposition. Yeah, and there it is. <laughs> We're in B flat. Wherever could we go next? Oh, F. Imagine that. That's just dandy. You know, like they're so formulaic and his aren't. Um, the the other people, oh, you know what? Kevin Day. Kevin Day is a young composer out of Georgia. And uh, we were looking at his piece. Um, he's got a piece that was played at Midwest. Uh, called Havana. And then we were looking at fire dance, I believe is the name dancing in fire, dancing in fire. And it's just, if you have, if you have an interest in jazz, I think Kevin day is a composer that you want your concert band to look at. He's sort of like Adam Gorb's uh, away day, 
there's just enough jazz influence to it to really be a great introduction, but the demand is, is quite strong. It, I started looking at it and I reached out to him. If you look on his Facebook profile, there are two gentlemen standing there, one that I thought was Kevin Day and one with a college student. And as you can maybe guess, he's the college student that's standing there with an older gentleman. And I couldn't believe it. He was still in undergrad. I think this year, I I can't remember if he was finishing now and is in his first year of grad work or is in his first year of grad work right now. But he's got, he's got a real unique sound that I think is fun. Um, Last one that I had is Leslie Gilreath. Leslie wrote the piece for us um, from whence we came. And he, he premiered three pieces at Midwest this past year and three the year before, one with Alfred and the Cobb Wind Symphony. I think, he's, I think he's doing some incredibly intelligent things. He, to me, reminds me of a mashup of Hindemith, Persichetti, and Tekeli. And that's a, that's a wild, wild mixture of stuff, but I think he has the intelligence and the harmonic nature of the previous two. With the way that Tekeli, and I'll tell you, with the the appeal of Tekeli, he to me is, um, he reminds me the most of Meslanka. And there are going to be people who think that I'm an idiot for saying that. But there's several places where I'm like, that's Meslanka 9 right there. Um, There's there's the traveler. At least he he sends you in those places and then he'll make his own turn that's just as unique. So I think that he has just incredibly good music. It's not going to be something that you get out and sight read. With each of those, you're going to have to live with it a little bit. And I think that would be maybe a last piece of advice. Don't be so quick to throw away a piece of music. Uh, And after you get to know the kids, they shouldn't dictate what literature is done. They can dictate some. But I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this, I have at times buckled under the kids saying, well, we just don't like this piece, and I've regretted it every time. Now, the caveat to that is if you're a new band director and uh, you haven't been with these students long, I think you do need to establish kind of a process. So I don't know that fighting about a piece of literature is worth that. But if you've been there for three years, the kids don't know what they don't know. And you as the band director have to teach them about great literature or else we keep watering down the expectations so that, you know, already orchestra folks look at us like the redheaded stepchild. And rightly so sometimes, rightly so. So I think that if we want to be taken seriously as artists, we have to make sure we're doing serious literature. Now you can do the other stuff for fun, but there has to be that serious literature there and taken seriously. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Bobby. And uh, here's my last question, and you can answer this how you wish. What is that band life? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That band life was an idea that Jeff Young who's uh, one of the teachers at Carmel High School in Indiana. Indiana. Uh, We've been partners in dynamic marching probably about, well, I guess we're going on seven or eight years now. 
And I knew, I knew the company before I knew Jeff and I thought the company does some great things. And when they invited me along, I jumped at the chance, but we started talking a year ago because when we do summer camps together, we found like band directors, they love the clinics, but you know what they love even more? Um, and this is for all the adult audience members. They love the hang after that. They love going to establishments where people can possibly buy drinks and have food and hang out and talk. That's where some of the real learning and earnest learning began. And so we wanted something where instead of us doing a presentation, we could just talk about that band life and what that meant. And not just about music, but how it affected our families, ourselves. And so we started this over a year ago. I think we're on episode 35 right now. We try to do two a month. And we, we want it to be out. My best uh, way to explain it is if you've ever listened to car talk on national public radio with the click and clack, the, the, the fix it brothers, that's kind of like what we are for band. I don't think we take ourselves too seriously because we take music seriously. I, that, that sounds weird. No, oh, I understand. I understand what you're trying to say. We basically want to meet band directors where they are first year, 30th year, rural, urban, poor, wealthy, affluent, whatever the, whatever the, the place, meet you where you are and say, I yeah, hear the things that we struggle with. I'm not going to lie. I freaking hate teaching online right now. Can't stand it. There are things that are coming out of it that are good, and I'll share what that is, but there are a lot of things that just won't ever be stimulated. Being in the same room and feeling the energy of students watching you being able to play in the same room and, and really trying to get into somebody else's sound just can't be simulated. So I don't, I don't like it, but here are the good things that we can take out of it. And let's keep moving forward. Absolutely. Well, what, what are a couple of those good things you, you said you'd mention that you can think of offhand? Student accountability. Okay. And self-directedness. Um, I've seen the kids actually, especially the kids that are, you know, if you think of your band as a bell curve, you've got the kids who are doing great no matter what, the kids that struggle no matter what, and then the average. Uh, Alfred Watkins told me one time that the way he really tried to make Lasseter Band go is he had the bell curve, and he just tried to shift the, the top further down the grid so that you, you still have your top and bottom, but you have more people on the top than you do on the bottom. And I, I think the same way with what I see now, I see a lot of our kids that were kind of in the average, in the middle, because they can't sit beside and hide behind people anymore. They have to submit their videos and even post it for their friends. They're approaching music in a little bit of a different way. I think that we all, like now we have all of our marching, playing, and movement warm-ups online. And I think you'll see, at least from us, more of a, Hey guys, by tomorrow, we need you to be able to do the plie and the tendu. We're not going to spend any time on it. We're going to do it. And if you can't do it, we're going to put you over here. And if you can do it, we're going to move on and do other things. I think again, there's that, uh, you know, the flipped classroom idea there. I don't know that I would have ever done any of that until now. So that's at least something good that's come out of it. Um, at one final thing that I would tell you is it's, it's made me realize how important the kids are. You know, sometimes we get so focused in on the process yeah. and the music and the budget and the administration 
that now that that's all I have, not being able to see the kids' faces every day is um, taking its toll. So we've been doing a lot of like, let's get together and just meet. We haven't had, we, we had a, two audition meetings and not one has happened without seniors breaking in. And I love that. I love that they're, they just want to come in and see everybody. Now, we're talking about the marching audition for next year. And we're talking about this movement. And I see seven seniors sitting there. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Like, we just want to see what you guys were up to. And uh, I think it will get the best thing to come out of this is it gives parents, students, and teachers a better appreciation for our time together. I think that's huge. Absolutely. Well, Bobby, I really appreciate you taking all this time to, to talk with me. And uh, I took a lot of great stuff from today that is, as soon as uh, I'm able to actually be in front of a band, we'll put some of those things into play. But I know there's a couple of those leadership things that uh, I can start with now. But uh, again, I appreciate your time. I hope you and your family are doing well. Thank you. And Don, I'll, I'll say this. I think that what you and Steve are doing, what several of us are doing too, uh, nobody can, we, we said, would you, you asked me about my mentors. I can't overstate how important having that connection to other directors and having that network of people and ideas is. And so what you guys are doing with this podcast and with several other things that you're doing is just incredible. And I, I'm so glad that I, I wish I would have had this when I was starting teaching. But luckily, I had Greg Bim next door, so I could figure out a lot of things. But I know so many people that are in rural areas that don't have this or that don't have that mentorship. And this is just so good for them. I appreciate that a lot. Thank you for what you guys are doing. Well, thank you. And if everyone could listen to one podcast, listen to this one. And if you want to listen to two, go listen to that band life. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Right on. Thanks a lot, Don. Thanks, Bobby.